You're listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, and I like it. I'd like to start off by portion of the show by giving a taste of a little something we call Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and Roll! Rock and roll to me. All right. Welcome back to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, the last show of 2022. My name is Don Demuccio, your kid tested, mother approved host. You're soaking in it. That's exactly right, Madge. If you haven't done so already, be sure to click that subscribe button on iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, or on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash it's only rock and roll podcast. Don't be a nerd. Spell it all out as one word. I think that's going to catch on. Today's guest songs were quite literally the soundtrack to the 1960s, including two number one singles and an additional 12 top 40 hits. Tommy James and the Shondells gave the British Invasion bands probably the only real competition they had this side of the Atlantic. I personally remember as a child, and we're talking four or five, long before I had any semblance of a record collection outside of a few Captain Kangaroo sing-alongs. My parents would break out their old 45s, and I remember that roulette label playing Crimson and Clover, and a great song, Do Something To Me, which never got its fair share of airplay, unfortunately, but it's really such a cool track. Now, if you've lived under a rock or on some deserted island and don't know who Tommy James is, enjoy this free crash course.
comprehensive list of the greatest singles of the 1960s would be woefully incomplete if it didn't include at least a half dozen songs recorded by today's guest. Along with his backing band, The Shondells, he's racked up 32 hits on Billboard's Hot 100 and has sold over 100 million records worldwide, including rock and roll standards like Hanky Panky, I Think We're Alone Now, Moni Moni, Dragon the Line, and the psychedelic classic Crimson and Clover. He's written an autobiography, Me, the Mob, and the Music, which the Denver Post described as reading like a music industry version of Goodfellas, which is appropriate as it's being made into a film soon to be hitting the big screens. Please welcome to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast, host of Sirius XM's weekly show, Getting Together, a true living rock and roll legend, Mr. Tommy James. Good afternoon, Tommy. Well, thank you. Thanks for that great intro. I got to live up to that now. Already have. <laughs> thank you again for doing this. And uh, Oh, my pleasure. It's great talking with you. Where are you right now? I'm in uh, northern New Jersey, just outside of New York. Beautiful. Which exit? Ah, that's the old joke. <laughs> that's what they. That's what they always ask. They never ask what town are you from. They say what exit. I gotta be honest. I'm uh, resolutely cheap, so I don't have a Sirius XM subscription. But I'm interested oh. in uh, what got you involved in doing the show. Well, I've been doing it for five years, and when they first came to me with it, with the idea of doing a show, I'll be honest with you, I was I was a little concerned, I was a little scared, and the reason is that I had really never worked that side of the microphone before, right. and I had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, they wanted me to do a three-hour show every Sunday, and that's a lot of time to fill up, and they said, well, Tommy, you can play anything you want to play. I said, that's way too much power. <laughs> I, they, they said, Tommy, listen, we want you to play a lot of your own stuff, too. I said, can I go to jail for that? And uh, <laughs> they said, no, the satellite is way up in the sky, so we had nothing to worry about. So I started doing it, and I absolutely love doing the show. You know, basically the philosophy is, in addition to playing the hits, we also play songs that never made the radio in the 60s and should have. Right. Should have been big hits. But, you know, there was so much music being produced in the 1960s that there was just no room on the charts, on radio, or any place else for new music. Right. And then you had regional hits, too, that might not have gone through the whole country or the whole world. That's right. Like, sure. You, you were raised in Niles, Michigan. Paint a picture. What That's kind of right. town are we talking about? Boy, you did your homework. Yes, that is correct. Well, Niles, Michigan is a little town in southwest Michigan, right by the state line with Indiana. And uh, it is very, very Midwest. Can't get any more Midwest than that. Uh, basically, uh, it's about 16,000 people. And uh, it's very easy to be a big fish in a small pond back there. Right. <laughs> I went to school there. And, uh, you know, I, lo I love it there. I still have a home back there, and I get back every now and then. But, you know, it, it's a wonderful town to have been brought up in. I think being brought up middle class in the Midwest is a great view of reality. Was there a certain naivete that comes along with being brought up there? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's real important to keep that sort of in your mind and in your heart the rest of your life, no matter where you go from there. I basically started my first cover band, the group that became the Shondells, when I was 12 years old. Was that the Echoes? And yes, it was. Okay. And uh, very, very good. You really did do <laughs> your homework. 
and uh, played for the seventh grade variety show in uh, my junior high school and got such a reaction that we decided to keep the band together, started playing teen dances and right. American Legion halls and stuff like that. So we had a couple of, of record deals, before, actually before I got out of high school. I worked in a local record shop in Niles and got to meet people, got a tremendous education about the trade papers, uh, the labels, and the songwriters, and the publishers, and all that stuff. And then I made what became my first hit record, Hanky Panky, in the radio studio, WNIL, for one of the local disc jockeys, Jack Douglas, that was starting his own little label, and uh, asked me if I would be interested in recording for his label. And I thought about it for about a second and a half, and I said, hell yes! Sure. <laughs> so, um, And the funny thing the is, Panky song, Panky was a uh, obscure B-side by the Raindrops. That's right. That's right. The only reason we knew about it was because I happened to, you know, on Sundays, I would sneak into a, a local club out in Niles and uh, I heard a group play Hanky Panky and I saw what it did to the crowd. Everybody hit the dance floor and I said to my friend, I said, you know, we got to do that. Uh, I, I, all I could remember was six words. My baby does the Hanky Panky and we recorded it. And it became a, a local hit. And when I graduated from high school in 65, I took my band on the road. And in early 66, while we're playing this dumpy little club in uh, Janesville, Wisconsin, the club owner got shut down for not paying his income taxes. And we got sent home feeling like real losers. But that's how the good Lord works. Right, because right. as soon as I got home, I got the call that changed my life. That uh, Hanky Panky, this record that I had done three years before, was sitting at number one in the city of Pittsburgh, only in America. I actually only found the original Billboard magazine from May 66 article, Dateline Pittsburgh, Roulette Acquires oh Hanky Panky Disc. 28,000 copies sold in 10 days. That's right. Yep. Uh, uh, it, it, that's how fast it all happened. The strange part is we got a yes from every major label, from CBS, uh, Epic, RCA, Atlantic, Kamasutra Records, remember them? Absolutely. Love and Spoonful. That's right. The last place we took the record to was Roulette. So the next morning, uh, you know, I figured we were going to be on, you know, Columbia or Atlantic, one of the corporate labels. And so uh, we got a call the following morning about 9.30 from all the other labels that had said yes the day before. Suddenly they're saying, well, listen, we got a pass. And I said, what do you mean we got a pass? I thought we had a deal. And finally, Jerry Wexler up at Atlantic told me the truth that Morris Levy, the head of Roulette Records, called all the other record companies up and uh, scared them. Mm. <laughs> Basically said, this is my record. Back off. He saw something, heard something in that track. Yeah, he, he knew it was a hit, and yeah. they needed one. Yep. So uh, that was the first offer I couldn't refuse from Roulette. <laughs> and uh, so, so I became, you know, that's right. <laughs> we were apparently going to be on Roulette Records, and sure enough, they took it to number one all over the world, and uh, we had tremendous success at Roulette. Can I back up just for one second? Absolutely. Because your book is so fantastic and there's so much in it. One of the things mm -hmm. that I really found interesting, at some point your folks moved to Wisconsin and they're managing a hotel. That's and right. Is that where you first heard rock and roll? Yes, it was. I was nine years old. It was Long Tall Sally on the jukebox. 
And it was one of those old Wurlitzer 1011 jukeboxes with the bubbles going up the side. I was in the bar. I wasn't supposed to be there. I went down before they opened, and yeah. I was always in front of the jukebox. And that's where I first got into rock and roll, yes. Now, I know you had played the ukulele a bit. Is that how you transitioned into the guitar? Well, I was four years old when I got the ukulele. So that's even before and, that, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, pl playing and singing. What happened was, uh, when, when I was nine years old and got into rock and roll, I saw Elvis Presley on the uh, Ed Sullivan show, and the ukulele went right out the window. So, <laughs> sure. so I begged my mom for a guitar. She got me one, a cheap Stella acoustic, and that was my first guitar. But I learned everything on the radio and bought records. And uh, so right from the beginning, all I ever wanted to do was play rock and roll. Do you remember the first rock and roll record you bought? Yes, actually, my mom bought it for me. It was uh, Bill Haley and the Comets, R-O-C-K Rock. Oh, yeah. So that was the beginning for me. You know, in your book, you mentioned something that I've thought about a lot. I'm 50 years old, so I didn't live through it. But there were two very monumental events that happened, one being the president being assassinated, and then what seemed like just weeks later, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. Can you That's recount right. your memories? I sure can. Um, well, I worked uh, in a record shop, and the distributor uh, would come in. We had a little one-stop distributor that would come in. The record shop was sort of like a paper route. But from Capitol Records, every week from about October on, the distributor would come in and put up a little tripod guitar made out of cardboard, and on the front of it were four people with their heads turned all the way around. All you could see was the back of their head. Mm -hmm. And every week he would come in and put another one of these little posters down, little tripod posters, and the faces would ever so slightly turn towards the front. And at the end of about eight weeks, they all turned around, and it was the Beatles, and it was the cover of their first album. It was Meet the Beatles their first album on Capitol and the release of I Want to Hold Your Hand. I thought it was a brilliant thing to do. They did that in all the record stores. Uh, all of a sudden, the Beatles were out. Actually, I believe it was like the first week of November, 63. Right. Well, of course, you know the rest of it. Uh, on November 22nd, President Kennedy was murdered in Dallas. Uh, it was right in the middle of the release of the Beatles' first album. So to me, the uh, upcoming of the Beatles and the death of JFK were sort of linked in a big way because for me, it happened at exactly the same time. I almost wonder if, had the president lived or not been shot at at all, I wonder if the Beatles would have had that impact on your generation well, I think they would. I, I, I must say, though, a, a lot of people have said, and I agree, that the only thing that made 1964 bearable after the death of President Kennedy was the Beatles and the British invasion. And uh, so you're right about that, that the, the, the Beatles, uh, I think they probably would have become just as famous, but I don't know if they would have had the sort of memory impact with the baby boomers that they had uh, because of uh, President Kennedy at that exact moment. So you, you may be right. I found it interesting that your initial reaction to their music was kind of lukewarm. How, yeah. How quickly that I, changed. I, I wasn't that nuts about them until my band started trying to play their stuff. 
and and we're looking at Larry Coverdale, my partner in crime in the my in my first cover band. He was the other guitar player, and we looked at each other uh, when we played. You know, uh, I don't know if you remember the descending chord progression in "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Sure, it was really amazingly put together. And then you get on with "Hard Days Night" and "Please Please Me" and stuff like that. And it was she loves you. Forget about it. Right. She loves you. Sounds so simple until you go to play it. And the chord progression and all the very sophisticated chord changes and uh, the melody to it was just amazing. So I, I really very quickly developed a great respect for the Beatles and loved their stuff. And then finally, my band, we all bought Beatle wigs. <laughs> we bought Beatle boots. We bought Beatle jackets. And our whole third set when we'd play was all Beatles songs. It used to crack me up that, you know, when we just wore our regular band outfits for the first two sets, it was no big deal. But as soon as we put the Beatle clothes on and the Beatle wigs, all the girls started screaming. Yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Did I read that in 1968 when they formed Apple Records that John and Paul were in New York and they paid you a visit? It was actually George. Oh. Uh, George had written me. He was he was producing a group called Grapefruit, and Moni Moni had just been the number one record and one of the biggest records uh, of the decade in England. And so George and his group wrote me about a dozen songs. The problem was they all sounded like Moni Moni, and by that time we were sort of into Crimson and Clover, and we had really changed, but. He, he brought them over and delivered them to my manager, Lenny Stogel. I was out on the road, and when I came back, I was just so flattered and honored, but I, I felt really bad that I didn't get a chance to see him and thank him for doing that. So I still have a, a tape of unpublished George Harrison songs. Isn't that something? Yeah, and I, 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 I didn't get a chance to meet Paul and Ringo till a few years ago at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when Ringo was being inducted and I was uh, performing Crimson and Clover. All right, with, with John. Uh, that's right. Uh, I did meet John Lennon back in uh, uh, 71 at a BMI dinner when I was getting an award for Dragon the Line and John was getting it for Imagine. And he sat right behind me with these big banquet, round banquet tables. Right. And he sat right behind me. And uh, Yoko was there. And we ended up having a nice talk and complimenting each other and everything. And it was a nice visit. So uh, one by one, I met them all. But That's awesome. it took a long time. I want to get back to Roulette Records, great record company. Obviously, they gave you a lot of musical freedom, which you might not have had if you had been at Capitol. Or, That's right. That's right. Know. But the book covers the reality that they were a front for the Genovese crime family. That is correct. Morris Levy, the head of the label, was a mob associate of the Genovese family. Of course, we didn't know that when we signed, uh, but we learned incrementally who we were involved with. The book, Me, the Mob, and the Music, although it's an autobiography, three quarters of the book is devoted to this very tumultuous, crazy, and sometimes scary relationship with Roulette Records. You know, crime doesn't pay, so we never got paid. It was basically, uh, you know, getting mechanical royalties was just not going to happen. You know, we we made a lot of money from touring and from BMI and, and uh, radio airplay and commercials and all that stuff. 
but we just weren't going to make mechanical royalties. And so we had to decide if we were going to stick it out and stay there because we were having such great success with the records. Right. We were selling so many records and we were having one hit right after another, 23 gold singles. You know, I had another 12 chart records as a solo artist, but royalties were just not going to happen. So I think we ended up making the right decision to stay there because, well, first of all, I get to tell the story. There you go. But also, uh, as you said before, we would have never had the kind of success at one of the corporate labels uh, that we had at Roulette. We would have been lucky to have been a a one-hit wonder at, at Columbia, for example. We would have had so much competition. We would have been immediately, especially with a fluky record like Hanky Panky, we would have been immediately turned over to an in-house A&R guy. Right. Uh, and that's the last anybody would have ever heard from sure. us. At Roulette, they actually needed us. And I got to know every nook and cranny of my craft. I learned how to write songs, produce records, design album covers. I was an on-the-job trainee, and that would have never happened at one of the big labels. I think we're alone now was a, obviously a huge single. There was supposed to be heavy breathing on it. <laughs> yes, there was. As a matter of fact, I think we're alone now was brought to me by Bo Gentry and Richie Cordell, and I knew right from the start that it was a hit record. As soon as I heard the hook, I, I knew I think we're alone now was was going to be a hit record. But it was presented to me as a uh, mid-tempo ballad. And so we took it in the studio and sped it up, and we decided that in that little section where the conga drum beats, like a heartbeat, yep. that we were going to put heavy breathing in there, and or at least breathe, yeah, the sound of somebody breathing. So we did that on the demo, and Morris loved it, so we did it on the master as well. And we sent out the DJ copies like that, but we started getting all kinds of pushback from radio stations and reviewers because it was a dirty record. Oh, jeez. Too risque for <laughs> so, 67. Right. Yeah. So mean, meanwhile, uh, the Rolling Stones' number one record was Let's Spend the Night Together. There so, you go. You know, right. you, go, you go figure it out. At any rate, uh, we got so much pushback that we ended up just uh, taking it out and putting crickets in. And so that worked almost as well. I got the point across. So that's kind of a, a funny story about 1967 and the hypocrisy in the record business. So, of course, the record collector in me says, wait a minute, there are promo copies available with the heavy breathing? If I could track there one down. DJ co- uh, well, I'd like to have one if you can find oh, one. Oh, yeah, big time. And it's on the master. Uh, it is on. I don't know if it's on the master. I don't know if we erased it. It was on a four-track tape. And uh, it may be. It's, pro- it's for sure on the demo. Do you own your masters? I own the masters uh, from 75 on. Okay. Uh, I do not own them from 66 to 75, which is when we were on roulette. Uh, the masters are owned now by Warner Brothers. It started out being owned by Rhino, and then Rhino was, became part of Warner's. And the publishing is owned by Sony. So, uh, but I can license anything I want. So uh, our record label is called Aura, A-U-R-A. Yep. And uh, so I can license anything I want from the from the catalog. One thing I never understood as I was reading through the book: Why were you banned by the BBC? Just well, there's it. a reason for that. <laughs> And uh, the reason was, after Moni Moni was number one in England, uh, I was booked in England to do a little tour. This is 1968. Yep. 
and to do the BBC show Top of the Pops, which was a bandstand right. show in, in Britain. And uh, so about a month before I, I went, we got a call from the vice president's office, Hubert Humphrey, who was running for president that year. And they asked if we would do a couple of rallies after he was nominated. And so we said yes. And when we did, we were asked if we would do the entire campaign with Hubert Humphrey. Uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, and I became good friends. And it was the first time rock and roll and politics had ever teamed up like that. Right. So I had to cancel my little British tour and the show Top of the Pops. Well, they went nuts. They told me that I would never be played in Britain again. And they pretty much kept their word. Must have just decimated sales in England, right? Oh, yeah. So many of the songs that were big hits in the United States were never heard in Britain because the BBC owned everything. <laughs> Except and, for the pirate uh, radios, I guess. That's right. Radio Luxembourg. Right. And, uh, yeah. Uh, now, the strange part is, now all of our songs are selling in, uh, in England. Good. Uh, we've just released another one called 40 Years, Tommy James and the Shondells, 40 Years. All of the singles released in a row on two CDs. I have it, and, and it sounds so, great. Fantastic. Well, thank you. Well, it's, it's selling in England now. So all of that stuff, I guess what goes around comes around. It's presented in beautiful mono, which is the way it should be. Yeah, that's right. That's how they were originally hit records on AM radio. A song like Hanky Panky, like when you recorded that, you were, what, 15? I recorded Hanky Panky when I was 16. 16, okay. 1963. So yeah. there's no stereo version of that? No. No. That was done in two-track? Yes. I mean, it was done, you know, what you see is what you get. Right. We, we, we did it live. I've often tried to reproduce. I've gone in and I did re-records of my hits, and we tried to get Hanky Panky to sound that bad, and we couldn't do it. <laughs> Nah, it's a magic in those old records that you just can't reproduce. Well, that's the truth. I mean, uh, you know, bad, cheap mics, bad echo, lousy wiring. Uh, it all adds up to, you know, it's, it's sort of like Motown was. It was, you know, very cheap microphones with bad wiring and cheap echo. Yep. And incredible talent. And that's that was the Motown sound. Exactly so that was right. our sound. You know, one of the interesting things you mentioned, after you went campaigning with Hubert Humphrey, yep. the industry changed overnight. And, you know, it's got to be said yep. that you guys deserve so much credit from going from, because it was a singles game in the beginning, and then became album-oriented market. You transitioned from being a rock and roll dance party band to psychedelia with an ease. Well, we were very lucky to have the attention of radio and the attention of the fans long enough to morph into whatever we could become. You know, we had a really nice run. In 1968, when we did go out on the road with Hubert Humphrey, when we left New York, the biggest acts on the radio were the Rascals, uh, Mitch Ryder, uh, Gary Puckett, us. Mm. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving a lot of acts out, the, the Buckinghams. Right. Uh, all singles acts. When we got back 90 years, 90, <laughs> 90 days, yeah. 90 days later, when we got back, it was all album acts. Right. Crosby, Stills, and Nash, Blood, Sweat, and Tears, uh, Led Zeppelin. You know, you go on and on and on. And in that 90-day period, the whole industry turned upside down. Record companies after the Sgt. Pepper album, by the way, 
realized they were losing by not doing, not having albums. So when we got back from touring with Hubert Humphrey, it was all albums, and we realized that we're going to have to sell albums if we're going to have a career because our career could have ended right there with Money Money. Right. You know, Roulette had been a singles-selling label, but they never sold albums that great. You know, we sold our share, but they were not an album label like Columbia or Atlantic. And so we realized that if we didn't start selling albums, that it, it could be over. So we were very blessed and fortunate to be working on a little song called Crimson and Clover at mm. that very moment. And Crimson and Clover allowed us to make that jump from AM top 40 singles to selling progressive album rock on FM stations because FM radio was also coming into the fold right at that moment, right. playing rock and roll. Up until that time, FM had only played jazz and classical music. All right. of a sudden, they're playing rock and roll in stereo. Mm. Uh, and then in the studio, we had gone from four track to 24 track in about 18 months. The, the multi-track taping systems were, you know, the next generation and were, uh, you know, you had to fill up 24 tracks instead of four. You had to be a lot more interesting and you had to sell albums and you had to be on FM radio. So the record business completely changed. And we were so lucky to have Crimson and Clover at that moment because I can't think of any other single we ever had that would have allowed us to do that. Well, talk about the production around that one. Uh, the vocals, for example, at the end. Is that literally just through an amp with vibrato turned up? Yes, it's exactly what it is. What we did was uh, we made the whole record in five and a half hours. We had written it. We actually had three versions of Crimson and Clover with the title Crimson and Clover. And the one we chose, we went in the studio with and did the whole record in five hours. And um, there's a, there's a, I don't mean to get too long-winded here. No, but please. The, the bottom line was that I was very proud of the record and what we did in five and a half hours. And by the way, we, it just occurred to us at the very end of the record to put tremolo on the voices. We'd had it on the guitar, and we ran a microphone through an Ampeg amp Mm -hmm. that I had used an Ampeg Gemini 2 amplifier with tremolo on it, then mic'd the amp and ran it back into the board. A very simple way to do it, but it became the signature sound of the record. So it was just one of those happy accidents that happened at the end of the record. But, I, but Roulette Records was really psyched and uh, was going to do a whole campaign around the release of Crimson and Clover. I had not mixed the record yet. I had a little seven and a half work tape that I basically mixed with my elbows. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just a work tape. So I took the tape with me to Chicago. We were playing that weekend. And I went up to WLS in Chicago, which at that time was the number one station in the country. My friend, the pro John Rook, the program director up there, uh, I took it up to him and I played this work tape for him and he flipped out and, and he said, would you play that again? I want, could I hear that again? And I played it and he taped it. He taped my tape, uh, unbeknownst to me. And so we've said our goodbyes and I went down, got back into the car and I, the radio is on. And just as I'm getting back in the car, I hear world exclusive on WLS channel 89. Oh, and I went, oh my God, he's 
He's playing the work tape. Uh, he is man. playing that rough mix. I never got a chance to mix the record because uh, 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 I got back to roulette. Morrison Red says, what the hell did you do? <laughs> and I, I said, I don't know. He's just playing the record. So they called up John Rook and told him that we had a whole release plan and that I hadn't mixed the record yet, that that was just a, a work tape. And so he said, it's great. They're calling up. He said the, the phones are lighting up. And uh, he says, we're going to break it. He started playing it every 20 minutes. And sure enough, the record within a week was on every major station in the country. John Rook at WLS broke that record. But he broke the work tape. And to this day, I never got a chance to remix it. Crimson and Clover is, a, is the same rough mix that I played for John Rook. Is there anything in that song that you would have changed in the mix? I guess not, because it was the biggest record we ever had. It went number one all over the planet. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I guess that was God's way of saying, that's the mix, Tom. Forget about it. <laughs> but that's good. So you never second-guessed it. No. Woodstock. I love I, this story. Well, this is 1969, summer of 69, and we are in Hawaii. We're playing one concert in Hilo on the Big Island, and then two weeks later, we're playing in Honolulu at the Bandshell. So the promoter decided to give us a vacation. We were staying at the foot of Diamond Head for those two weeks in this beautiful 22-room Spanish villa at the foot of Diamond Head. We're having a ball, and uh, I get a call from my secretary, Joanne, who's back at Roulette Records in New York. And she said, listen, Tommy, Artie Kornfeld was up. You know, he was a producer friend of mine who was also one of the promoters at Woodstock, but we didn't know that then. And uh, Joanne says, listen, uh, they're having this big gig, uh, according to Artie, up in, uh, at a pig farm in upstate New York, and they really want you to come and play. I said, wait a minute. Did you just say a pig farm? <laughs> she said, She says, yeah, that they say it's going to be a really big gig. There's going to be a lot of important people there. And I said, wait a minute. Artie Cornfield wants me to leave paradise, fly <laughs> 6,000 miles, and play a, a pig farm in upstate New York. I said, listen, if we're not there, go ahead and start without us. And I'm, <laughs> I'm like, you know, I hang, and I hang up the phone. And they did, and it was called Woodstock. And we, we realized by Friday, we're watching TV, and we see the New York freeway shut down, and we realized we screwed up really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I probably, in the end, have gotten more mileage out of the story right. than if I'd actually done the gig. Exactly. So, uh, and you weren't alone, because people think Woodstock happened in a vacuum. There were a lot of festivals going on back then. You couldn't oh, yeah. do them all. Well, I damn sure made the next one, though, the Atlanta Pop Festival. Oh, that was a big one. Yeah. Actually, 500,000 people more, more people than there were, was at Woodstock. Yep. A lot of the same groups. But uh, anyway, I, it was a great moment in our musical history. 1970s, Shandos broke up. I know right. you've attributed it to just kind of like burnout. I know. Well, that's really the truth. That's really the truth. We had just been going full tilt uh, for the better part of five years, and I was exhausted. Uh, we, we didn't plan on breaking up. We were only going to take six months off, but they opened a, a studio, a recording studio, and they started getting into their thing, and 
uh, ended up starting another group, and I started producing people. I started producing uh, Benny Mardonis and started producing at CBS. Uh, you know, I got kind of got into my thing, and we just ended up not getting back together. And I, I went back out on the road the following year. When you had Dragon the Light. Yes, and I was producing a group called Neon for yeah. Paramount Records. Mm-hmm. And uh, they ended up becoming my backup group. You know, we sort of went our separate ways. But we always stayed friends and stayed in touch. You wrote that great song, Tighter and Tighter, for Alive and Kicking. Had you ever recorded that with the Shondells at any point? Not with the Shondells. I did it later in the 1970s. Okay. But, uh, yeah, they were the first act that I did. I actually had written Tighter, Tighter for myself. We laid down the track. I played some guitar on it. Uh, I laid it down with Jimmy Wisner and with some studio players. And I went uh, in to do the vocal, and I just didn't like the way I was doing it. That's the first time that it ever happened to me. I didn't like the way it was coming out vocally. Yeah. So this group, Alive and Kicking, had been after me to produce them. So I called them and said, would you like to come in and take a shot at this? And they said, yeah. So I, I rewrote it as a, as a duet because they had a girl lead singer and a guy lead singer. Right. And so I rewrote it and a little bit, and they came in, played on top of the track that I had done. I took it back to Roulette and became a number one record. So I started producing people a little more seriously from that point. Uh, a, a couple of fun chart records, but uh, pretty soon I just stopped doing it. I went back out on the road after dragging the line and uh, just didn't have time to produce anybody anymore. For me, 1979, 1980, that period was just such a great period for music. There were a lot of comebacks from artists that hadn't charted for a couple of years, like you know, Don McLean, Gary West Bonds, and you had a huge hit with Three Times in Love. How'd that come about? That's right. Well, when I, I left Roulette in 1975, you know, we'd, I'd had all kinds of problems there, you know, not getting paid and, and just uh, a lot of problems. And I left... I was lucky to get out in one piece, to be honest with you, but uh, left in 75 and went with Fantasy Records out in, out in Berkeley, California. Did two albums for Fantasy. And then I came back to New York in 79 and I signed with Millennium Records. With my group, I wrote a song called Three Times in Love. We actually had three more chart records, Three Times in Love uh, and two others. And uh, went in the studio and recorded it, and it be- went number one in adult contemporary. Of course, adult contemporary was a new category on the charts by that time. It went top 20 on the pop charts and uh, number one on the adult contemporary charts. Right. And it was the first AC record I ever had. Uh, yeah, Three Times in Love was a very important record because I started touring again and uh, have been doing it to this very day. Well, speaking of which... All the years, throughout the entire time, what was your very best experience on stage, and what was your worst? Oh, God. Uh, boy, that is a really tough one. Well, one, I can tell you that one of the worst. Sure. It is 1967. We were doing a college in upstate New York. We're headlining the show. I think we're alone now is number one or number two, and we're headlining the show, and things are going great. And so we're getting ready to go on stage, and it just sounded like my guitar was a little out of tune. So one by one, we went over to the organ before we were actually introduced, and we all tuned up to the organ. And Mike was a little out of tune and on the bass, and the guitar 
the other guitar. Eddie was a little out of tune. I was a little out of tune. And what we didn't realize was that there was a power shortage in the building. And the organ was ever so slightly sinking in tone over about a 20-minute period of time. Uh-huh. So everyone in the band was tuned in a different key. Oh, my God. Every, everyone <laughs> in the band was was playing in a slightly different key. So we were all, you know, you know Eddie was a little uh, uh, flat to me. I was a little flat to Mike. Mike was a little flat to all the other two of us. And uh, so our first song was Midnight Hour. And I'll never forget the intro to Midnight Hour. We went, Tommy James and the Shondells, and the curtains open, and we go, one, two, three, four. It was the most ungodly thing you ever heard. And we had to, we had to stop the show and tune back up. That was my worst moment on stage. And I know that feeling, having been in uh, abandonment. And shows like that, you just get that white hot fear and anger. And it oh, just, it's it's the, yeah. the worst. And everybody's looking at us like, "What the hell's wrong with you guys?" And those are the days before so, like standalone tuners for guitars and stuff. They didn't even have that probably. That's right. That's yeah. right. So uh, who, who figured that the Hammond organ was going to go out of tune? Yeah. Right. Oh, that's funny. so. At any rate, at any rate, I and, and I, I can't really say my best moment. It was. Maybe it was was uh, the Atlanta Pop Festival where we played to uh, over half a million people. Wow, that's the largest crowd I ever played for. I think that's where Led Zeppelin made their debuts yes. on here too. Yeah, that is that is correct. You know, you've been very generous with your time. I don't want to monopolize too much more of it, but I got to ask you: your songs have been covered so many times by a variety of artists. Some brilliantly, like Joan Jett and REM. Some, you know, mediocre, like Billy Idol, and some insipid, like Tiffany. <laughs> it's my constitutionally protected opinion I can say this Yes you can But when they're your songs Can you objectively decide Whether or not the cover is a good one That does the song justice Well the truth is I am very flattered And very honored When somebody records one of my songs uh, You know I, I'm always intrigued How another artist is going to You know interpret my music As you said Some of them are really good Some of them aren't so good But uh, I've been very lucky. We've had over 300 cover versions of our songs done by artists so different as like Dolly Parton to Prince, the Boston Pops, you yeah. and Moni Moni. That, that was the who. That's awesome. So uh, I, I'm, I'm honestly very honored when somebody does our songs. One of my favorites has to be R.E.M.'s version of Dragon the Line yeah. from the Austin Powers movie. Yep. Uh, another one has to be Prince. Prince did Crimson and Clover, the most amazing futuristic version of Crimson and Clover, not too long before he died. Yeah. Um, and Dolly Parton and I did a duet of Crimson and Clover that was on her Those Were the Days album. She wrote me the sweetest letter, and uh, she did her half down in Nashville. I did my half here in New York, and we got together at Radio City Music Hall and had a nice visit. Uh, uh, she did an amazing version of Crimson and Clover and made it country. Nice. And it worked. Yeah. It actually worked. All right, that's the diplomatic answer. Now, has there ever been one, I won't ask you to name names, but has there ever been a cover where you say, nah, wish they had just left it alone? Yeah, there was a couple of them. But <laughs> uh, I'm not going to name it a groups, but there was, there was 
uh, a ver- couple of versions of Moni Moni and I think we're alone now that probably I could have done without. All right, leave Tiffany alone. Not her, not oh, her. Okay. I, you know. <laughs> this might be a stupid question to hand on, but I'm going to do it anyways. If Tommy James today at 75 could go back in time and give Tommy Jackson one specific word of advice, what would it be? Get a real job. <laughs> <laughs> no, that wouldn't have been it. Um, oh, boy. I probably would say, you know, be a better businessman. Mm-hmm. That'd probably be my only thing because the good Lord has been looking out for me for a long time and kept me out of real trouble. And uh, honestly, uh, uh, I have been so blessed and so fortunate to be doing this for almost 60 years. Right. And I look out at our concert crowd now, I see literally three generations of people and they didn't come with each other. Right. They came right. separately. And right. I, I'm so amazed by that. I'm amazed that you can start with a record like Hanky Panky and keep doing it this long. Rock and roll business is a business that maybe gives you two to three years. And we've been doing it all this time. So I'm I'm amazed. I'm blessed. I'm honored. And uh, that's the way I really feel. Tommy, thank you. I really appreciate it. God bless you. Thanks for a good interview. Forty years, the complete singles collection, 1966 to 2006. That's Tommy James and the Shondells would do something to me. 
was really great spending time with Tommy, but we really didn't even scratch the surface when it came to the craziness involving his relationship with Roulette Records and more specifically with Morris Levy, who, if you ever watched The Sopranos, was the inspiration behind the character Hesh, the mob-connected record exec. If you want to get the whole story, check out Tommy's autobiography, Me, the Mob, and the Music, One Hell of a Ride with Tommy James and the Shondells. Links to both the CD and the book can be found in the show notes. We're going to leave you with the track that Tommy wrote and produced for the band Alive and Kick in 1970, entitled Tighter and Tighter. And until next time, thanks for listening to the It's Only Rock and Roll podcast. You know I got to show you.